Welcome to Is This Working? The podcast hosted by two best friends who question everything we have ever been taught about work, life and happiness. I'm Anna Codrerado. And I'm Tiffany Philippou. This week, we have a life-changing conversation to share with you with a very special guest. But before we reveal who that is, Tiffany, you've got some super exciting news about your book. Yes. So my book, which I talked about writing in our first ever episode of this show, is now available for pre-order. It's coming out in March 2022. It's called Totally Fine and Other Lies I've Told Myself. And it's a story of what my decade in grief taught me about life. And it asks some big questions and explores what it means to live. And fans of the show will hopefully find some of the themes interesting. So I'm going to put the pre-order details in the show notes. So check it out. I've actually already read it. How lucky and fortunate am I? And I can attest to the fact that it's absolutely brilliant. And I also want to emphasize how important pre-orders are for first-time authors like Tiffany. They make such a big difference in the early moments of the book and in the marketing efforts and everything. So if you can, and if you're at all interested and you think you want the book, just pre-order it, please, please, please. Also, the great thing about pre-ordering is you do it now and then on the day of publication, you have the book. So uh, yeah, the details are in the show notes, but Uh, please go ahead and do that. It's a really great way to support Tiffany and then in turn the show. So thank you very much. And on with today's show. So for this episode, we recorded an interview with the author, Oliver Berkman, all about time and his quite confronting, but also very liberating way of thinking about it. So in Oliver's latest book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, he talks about the limitations of traditional time management advice and gives us kind of a different way of thinking about it and thinking about productivity and how we're kind of going about our days and, and using our time. Oliver used to write a column about productivity for about 10 years at The Guardian called This Column Will Change Your Life. And whilst his writing on the surface kind of seems like it's about how to get more more done, it's actually all about meaning, purpose and living a better life. As fellow productivity addicts, this conversation changed my life. It has big confronting ideas and just knowing those has really impacted how I live my daily life. And I've already made small changes and shifted my perspective over my relationship with time. So yeah, settle in and get ready to be challenged and stretched, but it's also a really fun conversation and Oliver Berkman is 100% on my dream dinner party guest list. Before we get into the show, as always, pretty please rate, review and subscribe so others can find us. It really, really helps. On with the show. Oliver, welcome. Thank you so much for coming to the, on the show. Thanks very much for inviting me. Um, Anna and I are both longtime readers of your Guardian column. And as we were both reading your book, 4,000 Weeks, Time and How to Use It, we were VMing back and forth being like, this is changing our lives. Um, <laughs> we, are, <laughs> we are like you claim to be productivity geeks. We're obsessed with time. Our first ever episode on this podcast was all about time. Um, so yeah, we're super excited to talk to you. We, we also found the book extremely confronting at many points. Um, <laughs> and we can't wait to sort of delve into it and talk about it with you. But uh, to kick off, um, can you start by telling us a little bit about what drove you to write the book and how it came about? Sure. Thank you very much for those um, kind remarks about it. And I mean, yeah, it's obviously, I think this is probably true of all books that purport to be advice books, but it's definitely a exercise in being confronting to myself as well, right? I mean, this is definitely the stuff that I needed to try to understand and to some extent still need to try to understand about about time. And then the advice that I 
needed to hear that came out of that. Um, so, I mean, I guess, yeah, I wrote this column for The Guardian for for many years where one of the things, not the only thing, but one of the things I did there was to sort of explore different approaches to time management and productivity and sort of building a meaningful work life uh, and, and life in general. And it, obviously that was a fantastic opportunity. Uh, it was, it was enabled me to sort of explore this terrain in, in um, great depth and breadth. But in a way, I think it was also sort of enabling a, enabling a weird personality issue at the same time. You know, it's like, um, I write in the book that it's like being an alcoholic, uh, conveniently employed as a, as a wine expert when you, it's maybe a little bit, um, sort of uh, trivializing of alcoholism. But what I mean to say is that um, if you are someone who thinks that you're about to find the perfect productivity technique or system for arranging your life that is going to lead to you finally feeling on top of everything and finally in 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 charge of your time, you know, which is was my story for many years, then uh, it's sort of a useful cover to be able to be investigating hundreds of these things under the guise of, uh, under the guise of, well, it's, you know, it's my job. I've got to do it. Um, but that was actually very useful because I think in the end, what it ended up doing was sort of showing me where that quest for the perfect time management system led, which is to defeat. Um, uh, there isn't one, but, but a sort of very useful and constructive kind of, of defeat, I think. And I sort of think about this book as what comes after the quest for the perfectly optimized life. So I'm sort of hoping to take readers through why I think that kind of quest is is fundamentally flawed and then how to think about relating to our sort of terrifyingly finite time on the other side of that of that realization, I suppose. One thing um I wanted to know or something that I was curious about, because it, it very much felt to me reading the book that at some point in your own productivity journey, you started questioning things and that became the genesis of this book. But I'd actually like to go even further back. And how did that column first come about? Because um, I once heard from a kind of mentor of mine, a, write, a writing professor, that all writers are, are drawn to subjects that in some way they are, there's always a reason for them to be so drawn to them. So why were you first writing about productivity yeah. in the um, way back when the column started? It's a great, it's a great question. I think you're right, uh, or that your mentor was, that you quote there was right. Um the sort of superficial story is that um, my editor at the time at Guardian Weekend Magazine saw that I was uh, consuming all these kinds of books and things anyway, uh, and thought she might as well get some regular content out of it and had the very smart idea that it was a good fit for my sort of writing interests. But I think no question uh, that was, and like all writing on some level that I do anyway, you know, some kind of has some sort of therapeutic side to it that you're sort of, that I'm sort of, you're drawn to the things that you struggle with and, and, and books promising to be able to get more done or to be able to, uh, live a happier life or to be able to feel less stressed and anxious about things. They have an appeal. They have an interest to me because I'd quite like, uh, because I quite wanted solutions to those, to those problems. Now I think that where you, go when you really look deeply into those questions is often not where those books are or most of those books want to lead you but um yeah totally i mean occasionally when uh, in the early days then when i was like giving a talk at an event or something someone in the audience would would say in a tone that implied they thought they got my number that i was sort of doing all this as as um sort of self self therapy but I mean, about six months into doing the column, I was like, yeah, of course. Like, isn't that obvious? It's much, the much more interesting question is what do the people who write, you know, biographies of Hitler, what's going on with them? Yes. I think wanting to, <laughs> wanting to be happy and, um, and productive is a fairly uh, universal, uh, uh, kind of, uh, kind of issue to have. So I was definitely, and to this day, yeah, totally. I've, I've, I don't really have much embarrassment about saying that anymore. <laughs> 
looking for looking for my own uh, answers yeah well you're also amongst your people here because um <laughs> we've also swallowed hook line and sinker all of those books all of that advice um i think if i could chill for the pomodoro technique i would um yeah. so but anyway it's a very safe space here <laughs> good wonderful among friends um, but but to follow on from that this is what i found so confronting from your book i thought the pursuit of efficiency and to get more done was a worthy pursuit in itself and once i started peeling away at what goes underneath that through reading your book um it made me really question i mean everything um and and one of the things you talk about was that entitlement that we feel over time and that being a modern phenomenon. Can you tell us a little bit more about that idea? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different ways to go with this, but I think that, um, well, the tell me if this is not exactly what you wanted to focus on, but the the, the, the idea of entitlement, um, that word is is very sort of powerful for me because I think that, yeah, we have this kind of orientation towards our time that we sort of, on some level, we ought to be immortal. We ought to have all the time in the world. And it's some kind of affront or insult that we have so much less than uh, an infinite amount of, of time. And I think that's one of the things that drives this idea that it just must be the right approach to try to fit more in to the time available because we're trying to sort of take the sting out of this appalling situation that uh, you know we should have at the very least hundreds of thousands of years but we have um but we have 80 instead or whatever um and how it's sort of possible to turn that completely on its head um and and ask like what, what like the chances of having been born were so were so remote in the first place that it is at least sometimes, depends what mood you're in, I guess, but it's possible to see that the, the fact that you have any time at all as this sort of extraordinary gift and that that kind of removes the urge to always be trying to cram more in. I think that the, I think that the drive to just become more efficient at all costs usually has, for most people, consciously or otherwise, some kind of fantasy endpoint where you'd be able to do, quote, everything, maybe not literally everything, but everything that you could think of, everything that people could demand of you, everything that you could feel obliged to do, you could like do it all. And that's really just eternal life by another means, right? I mean, one option is to live forever. And the other option is to be able to do an unlimited amount in the time you've got. They both amount to a kind of, um, uh, you know, superhuman approach. Uh, and, and so I think that, um, that's sort of the motivation there. I, uh, the other sort of fun part of this to talk about if you want is like what is like why what happens when you do just pursue efficiency and and fitting more in and how it doesn't actually even lead to doing more of the of the meaningful stuff but i think that's the that's the sort of deepest um human yearning at the bottom of this and then yes it's all massively massively enforced by and, and reinforced by the culture and the socioeconomic system that we're that we're in for sure yeah I certainly realized as I was reading the book that I certainly have been working in a way that is seeking this fantasy endpoint and just being aware of that was again I'm, I'm going to keep using the word confronting but um <laughs> <laughs> that really was my experience of reading it and um the other thing I found confronting, and especially as someone who considers themselves fairly self-aware, like we have this podcast, mm -hmm. we write, um, and yet what I found also confronting was when you talked about death and how we a lot of our obsession with productivity, as you've just said, is that trying to beat mortality and how sometimes some of the distractions that we do as well are distracting ourselves from the reality that we're all going to die. Um why are we so scared of death? <laughs> That's the big question. I mean, I'm I'm always a little um I always feel a little sheepish when it when the conversations turn to sort of death itself because I do not have any reason to believe that I am more um uh reconciled to my mortality than anyone else. I don't think that's I don't think that's 
probably true. Um, and so I sort of think of most of what I'm exploring in this book as w- one of the most obvious ramifications of the fact that there is death, which is the finitude of our time, as opposed to, you know, it's not a book about death and dying. There are some great ones, but, but that this is not, not, not that at all. Um, so I don't necessarily think that the only reason we find death so hard to get our heads around is that it gives us this fact of having finite time. Um, I think it's sort of incomprehensible in other ways as well. But I guess the one that I'm focusing on here is, yeah, it, 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 because the fact, because of the fact that we die, that means that we have this extremely limited amount of time on the planet. And we also have very limited control over how that time unfolds. But at the same time, we're sort of blessed or cursed with, with minds that can conceive of effectively like, you know, the infinite, we can conceive of doing far more things than we have, are going to have time to do. We can feel more social and family obligations than we would ever have time to fulfill. We can have more ambitions than we'll have time to fulfill. So, you know, there's this sort of built-in lack of fit between what we can think of and long for and what we would ever manage to be able to um, do that that is a sort of it's one of the big consequences of the fact that we're mortal and so i think yeah i think the the sort of i guess it's kind of a psychoanalytic argument in a way that runs through this book on some level is that um because we'd rather not feel that uncomfortable feeling of having to make tough choices with time of having to let some people down if we're going to focus on other people of having to um surrender some ambitions if we're going to go all in on some other ambitions because we'd not rather because we'd rather not feel all that what most of what passes for productivity advice and and energy put into time management is often just energy put into building structures of like emotional avoidance so you don't have to feel that because if you think that next week or next month or next year you're finally going to get to this point of perfect productivity which I thought for years, and I would not claim to be completely free of <laughs> even today. Um, it, if that's always just on the horizon, then I mean it can't be now in the present because it's an actually it's an logically impossible demand. But if it's always there theoretically on the horizon, that's a lot more comfortable than really like confronting the fact that this is it, and that if there's going to be meaning in your life, it's got to be now, and that there isn't this um, there isn't this golden era uh coming so because you know i mean as you'll know if you're as if you're as into all these sort of all this productivity stuff as as i am a lot of it depends on the idea that like next week you're going to wake up with 10 times as much self-discipline as you've ever displayed on any day of your life uh to date and you're always thinking well i'm going to do it some for some reason that's going to happen i'm going to be able to make that sort of that sort of change, d- despite all the evidence, and I think the, that gets its power from the fact that the, the alternative is is so sort of unappetizing to face. But I think facing it on the other side of the unappetizingness, there is a lot of there's a liberation. Uh, but anyway, I'm going something, on. Something that really came through for me, or at least um, what it got me really thinking about, particularly the parts where. Um, you do talk about, you know, the importance of confronting our limitation and how we are just trying to avoid the fact that we have limited time on this earth and that we are going to die, is that it did kind of bring up this um, this inherent tension that we all have, which is we can't dwell on the fact that we're going to die all the time because right. that is... Um, Yes, quite depressing, um, and also can also be quite can also be quite paralyzing. So um, there's a section of the book that I really related to, which is not only um, not only how we try to maximize our working time and streamline it and make it so efficient, but we also do that to our free time as well. Yeah. So we're in danger of just. I don't know. Sometimes I, 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 for vast parts of the book, I was reading and thinking, "My God, I'm doing life all wrong." Um, oh no! <laughs> which, but which is kind, which is, which to me is a symptom of this whole problem. Right, that right. No matter what we do, 
you know, it's still, we just need to confront the hard stuff. Um, And so a part of me kind of thinks, well, we do sort of need to be able to ignore the fact that we're going to die so that we can actually get on and live. Um, But it's just about finding that balance and realizing that, um, that actually what are we turning to these productivity hacks for? Um, And something that I very much have felt that I'm uh, on a somewhat of a journey with is I've tried so many of these time efficiency things and um, time management techniques. And when they don't work, it's a very much an internalized, like, oh, I'm just not doing it right. I'm right. not motivated enough. I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who can do this or, or you know, all of it just comes down to sort of a me problem. Yeah. And it was so refreshing to realize, oh no, there's a whole book about this because actually this is so, this affects so many other people and it's not, if it's not if it's not that I'm not doing them right, maybe the problem is the is not the is the is the hacks themselves. And what I find really interesting is that um, what you talk about in the book is actually the the productivity techniques they do their job really they actually work. It's just that the desired outcome is not the one that we thought we were after. Um, yeah. That kind of blew my mind. Oh, that's 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 good to hear. Now I think that that sort of I mean, that thing you say about realizing that it's not just you, I mean, there's sort of two levels to that. I always think one is, one is there's just nice solidarity in knowing that your the ways in which you're screwed up are the same way that several million people are screwed up. So it's like, you know, there's, we're all in the same boat, but it's also because there's like the thing that we're trying to achieve here, I think on an emotional level, when it is that sense of having your life sorted out getting everything in full working order, being optimally productive and capable and all the rest of it. It's like, it's literally impossible. It's impossible in the same way as making two plus two add up to five is impossible, right? It's just, I don't know what the right word for that is, logically impossible or something. It's not, um, it's not just impossible because you haven't yet found the right technique or summoned up enough self-discipline. Um, and that's hugely liberating because we don't tend to beat ourselves up for not being able to do things that we understand are kind of logical impossibilities. Um, and to me, that's just really relaxing to see like, oh, the thing that I was trying to do is not possible. I could never achieve it, but it's no slight against me that I could never achieve it because nobody could ever achieve it. So now that sort of frees up time and attention and focus to say, what can I do? What what could I, you know, what what could I do that would be sort of incredibly meaningful and a great accomplishment or whatever it might be, but, but no longer in the service of this impossible, this impossible goal. So I think, you know, any productivity technique, I wrote a piece recently about um, sort of returning to the Pomodoro technique after years. I don't think there's many productivity techniques that are sort of evil. I think they can all be sort of brought into this spirit of, well, I, I'm finite, I'm not going to get everything done, but it's useful to have ways to give shape to the day. The problem is coming at them and seeing them as your salvation. I think that's the, to me anyway, I don't know if that speaks to your Yeah, definitely. Um, for sure. Um, <laughs> keep picking up the Pomodoro technique. I I, I think there's nothing <laughs> wrong with it. I, I no. think, I mean, I uh, I use it religiously. It's kind of how I get it's the only way I get stuff done, particularly with writing, actually. Um, it's how I wrote my book in a series of Pomodoro te- like chunks. Um, so, but it's that, I think, I guess where if kind of to go really deep on the Pomodoro technique is that the advice is you need to do it. And also if anyone listening who doesn't know what the Pomodoro technique is, it's actually really simple. <laughs> it's really it's simple. so basic. And when I first heard it so strongly, when we talked about it on the podcast, I think it's the biggest thing people have taken away from the show over the well, last it's the year. Biggest, it's the biggest thing that I ever took. I heard it once on stage somewhere years ago. Some guy said, if you're struggling to get stuff done, set a timer for 25 minutes, pick one task and focus on it uninterrupted for 25 minutes take a five minute break and then repeat that four times and um and then take a longer break and actually that's the bit where I really fall down I beat myself up about the fact that I actually can't really get through more than three in a row mm-hmm. um and then I'm like oh but you know you're supposed to do four and then take a half hour break I can only get through three and then I need a two hour break and that's where the the kind of that's where the beating up 
start. And that's where I kind of think, oh, but you know, if the book said to do this, or if that guy on the internet or whatever it was, um, that's when I'm like, but other people can do, can do it in four or the, you know, the official way to do it is this way. Um, or, you know, sometimes it will take me kind of like the bulk of the time to get into the flow. And then I'll want to pause the timer because I want to keep, you know, it's all of that stuff. And that's the bit that I internalize. The actual working for 25 minutes focused that has never failed me um, right, right. but it's all of the meaning and everything that you put on around it yeah absolutely and i mean yeah maybe we shouldn't keep on and on talking about the pomodoro technique though it does fascinate me because if you actually the guy who came up with it wrote a book which about it which i was i think was probably a, always going to be a challenge right because it's so, <laughs> so, so, so simple How yeah. do you, but but it turns out when I go back and read that book that that he actually has some very interesting ideas about the sort of philosophical and existential meanings of of all this. And he talks about, um, in a way that is very resonant with what I think I've tried to do in my book, he talks about um, the ways in which we sort of turn time into an adversary in the way that we approach um, productivity. We sort of decide that on some level we've got to wrestle this thing into submission and sort of dominate and conquer and um there's a whole sort of fascinating feminist aspect to this about whether this is an inherently sort of masculine approach to time that's a whole other conversation maybe but but that we sort of want to win a fight against time and you're always going to lose the fight against time like that's built into the human condition and so the pomodoro technique in his original understanding as i as i grasp it was to sort of was about turning time into an ally. It's sort of about saying, look, your day is already sort of divided into 25-minute segments and five-minute breaks in a, in a way. I, I, I'm sounding like a, this is like one of those sort of slightly stoned sounding thoughts, but you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it's like all you're doing is bringing out the fact that you already have this limited time and then you're deciding to do certain things for as opposed to what it, people do with some productivity techniques, which is to try to sort of beat time into into submission so that you're the master of time and you decide how what you're going to get done in the next so many hours but of course you can use the pomodoro technique for that too or you can do what some of us do you and i think me too which is turn it on turn it internally and beat yourself up for for not managing to master your day in that way but like there there is no point trying to win the battle with well that that's time. what really spoke to me is I realized that I exist in a complete fantasy land so I um I <laughs> we so also I will, um we also enable each other as well just to turn, we enable, really yeah, turn yeah, we into a other. um and I realized that fantasy land um when I was reading your book when of course if I when I send an email people reply to the email and then I have to respond to the email and I know you talk about this <laughs> And similarly, I was like busting my gut to get this copywriting project done, sent it out. And the, the client gave the feedback immediately. So it was back on my to-do list right. <laughs> within minutes. Um, yeah. And I know it's super obvious, but I honestly, the fantasy world I lived in until I read your book, I didn't realize that it just doesn't end. And I was working towards an ending that was never coming. And mm-hmm. um just starting with that awareness and being able to approach the to-do list knowing that it never ends I found very freeing um as well so that was a a very helpful helpful experience there's this amazing idea in that you keep coming across in sort of zen buddhist writing about how we sort of treat life as a problem to be solved or well there's a quote that I use at the beginning of the book from a american zen Buddhist called Jocko Beck. And she says, um, what makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured. This idea that this idea that what we're here to do on earth is to get to the point in our lives where we don't have any problems anymore, um, which I fall into all the time, but it is completely absurd, right? This idea that, um, I mean, some problems are worse than others. It would be nice to get to a point where you didn't have any really big ones and some people are very unlucky in the problems that confront them and others are very fortunate but the idea that you would ever get to a point in your life where you'd like done all the stuff that needed doing and dealt with all the demands that were being made of you it's it's sort of self-evidently absurd and i think it would also be kind of terrible if it ever did and sort of meaningless and and awful if it ever did 
somehow come to come to pass so yeah i mean that's i mean this is something my wife is always telling me when she hears me moaning about some problem that i'm facing in my work it's like no this is the work right i mean these are this dealing with these things that come up is is the is the fact of what we're here to 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 do it's not that we have to get them all out of the way and then our real life is going to begin sometime next year next year next year you know one thing i do wonder about um is um because something that really struck me was when you talked about um how how actually very isolated if if we could achieve this sort of perfect management of our time how actually very isolating it would be because the reality is is that work life relationships friendships everything is a collaborative process so one problem that we're trying to get a grip on is and kind of what Tiffany was talking about with you know I'm going to do my to-do list. This is on my timeline. I've done my edits. I've answered my emails. I've done all of this stuff. How dare you then try to impose your timeline onto me? Um, that actually, if we did master our schedules, it would be a really, really lonely place. And I hadn't really ever thought about it like that. Um, and I do think that something that, I do think it is both enabled and made worse by the fact that um, that I work for myself in quite a solitary mm. way. And you know, as a fellow writer, I wonder kind of, do you think it is worse for some people than it is for others? Because, you know, when I used to work in an office, you kind of, you can really moan about it, but you, you also have to just suck up to a large extent and you are forced to go to meetings and you are forced to be a team player. Um, but I can really control that. Um, you know, I was, you know, I don't have to go, I don't, I don't go to meetings. I don't do all of this. I tapped out of that world. Um, and I used to think, you know, how I've really won at life in achieving that. But then I've, now I'm thinking, Oh, is this just not more of me just controlling everything? <clears throat> no, it's fascinating and it's such a challenge. I mean, and one of the things that just springs to mind uh, as an aside really is that actually the other thing that happens is that the more control you do achieve over your time, the more frustrating it is in those areas where you don't have it. So, you know, I really, I, I never want to feel like spending time with my son is an interruption from the real thing I'm doing, which is my job. But I do have that thought sometimes and I have it partly because I do get to sort of exercise this dominion over my work <laughs> and you don't get to exercise dominion in the back and forth with a small child and you shouldn't. Um, yeah, I think, I think it is worse for some people. It's very, it's a very sort of nuanced and ambiguous thing, isn't it? Because, you know, obviously boundaries are important and not just being dictated to by other people is important. And sometimes when the conclusion that comes from a lot of this kind of conversation is like, we should go back to some earlier times when there were more communal rituals and Sabbaths were observed and, and people didn't have so much individual choice about when they did things. But there were big downsides to that too, right? There's a lack of freedom. There's a lack of freedom that falls in an extremely unequal way on different people and on men versus women and all the rest of it. Um, so it's not like, it's, it's not bad that we have, uh, the, the, or that some of us anyway are lucky to have like, you know, quite a lot of control over our, over our work days. It's more that you have to sort of, I think you just have to sort of, as a practice, take some of that control you have and choose to, to give it up through, through making uh, commitments basically. So, you know, if you, if you, uh, join some kind of organization or professional circle or whatever it might be that meets at a specific time on a specific day, like already that's a little bit of a surrender of autonomy because you can't have those group, uh, organizations and uh, unless people are willing to all meet at the, meet at the same time. Um, I mean, this conversation couldn't be happening unless we were all willing to have some sort of back and forth about and make some sort of concessions about precisely when we want to do things. Um, so, you know, I think it, it, it's, it, and then you also have to avoid just being someone who says yes to everyone else's agenda for your life so that you end up being a doormat. So, I mean, I think it's just worth bearing in mind that there are downsides to that sort of individual sovereignty. I think that's the message over to over time. I think that's the message that is forgotten 
today in the culture in general, um, there are there are benefits to um, surrendering to communal rhythms and things like that. There are downsides too, but we know about those. It's the, it's the benefits that we tend to forget, I think. Yeah, I think that's another thing that spoke to me because I became obsessed with productivity when I went freelance and self-employed because previously I'd spent 10 years being paid to go into an office and chat to people all day under the guise of being like a manager, whereas um, so- <laughs> had a great time. Um, and um, And then suddenly I was paid only on my output. So suddenly I became obsessed with my production and how I could produce in the most efficient time. Um, and it's it's still an obsession four years later. And again, when I was reading what you're saying about what is this mythical future? What is the end point? Um, because I was even last week telling myself, oh, I'm, I need to work like this because there th- there's this vision I have that I'm going to get to this place and I don't need to work like this anymore. Um, so I need to earn as much money as possible now. So I'm free to write my next book. Like that was all my, that was all my thinking. Um, but bringing back, going back into the present, as you talk about, I began to start turning away a lot of work in the last week or so, because I began to accept that there is no fantasy end, like how I work now is um, how it will always be. And so I, you know, that's been a huge way that already my day-to-day life has, has been impacted through being more aware about living in that fantasy land and bringing myself back down to reality. That's really interesting. And I mean, it just makes me slightly self-absorbedly maybe, but makes me realize the degree to which I also, uh, you know, I'm not free of any of these uh, illusions. One of the ironies about how this book has gone down is it's been, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but it's been pretty well received in a number of places and I've got a lot of great feedback from it and it's leading to some interesting opportunities. And so it presents its whole new range of time management challenges where I've got suddenly quite a lot more email than I used to get and quite a lot of sort of exciting possibilities that were that are sort of less mundane seeming than the previous ones. And and so, you know, it makes you realize that on some level these this problem and having to make this correction where you realize, oh hang on, I'm not going to get on top of it all. It's like it's it's a sort of an infinite, it's an endless process. And it's going to be somewhat more acute if your career goes pretty well, right? So this is a function of things going pretty well right now. I'm not saying they always will at all, but like, the, and if you're turning down work, that's a function of your work going well because you're getting the work to to turn down. Um, and so, you know, I, it reminds me of this line from a psychotherapist called Bruce Tift. I quote him on other matters in the book a couple of times, but who talks about this practice of kind of imagining what your greatest figuring out what your sort of greatest basic psychological struggle is in life which might be or one of them might be you know this idea of always trying to get on top of everything and get it all handled um and just imagine what it would be like to to know that you were never going to get rid of that issue that it was going to be with you to your to your dying day um and to me, there's something really liberating about that. Like my, my shoulders did just drop, uh, literally. In fact, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, okay. I'm not only am I never going to get to the end of everything and on top of everything, but I'm also never going to get past this idea that it would be really nice to get to the end of everything and get on top of everything. Okay. Um, fine. And then you can just sort of do some things today. I think that's, I think that's lovely as against the response that I occasionally get to this book, which is people saying like, I really like the ideas in it, but I, but I'm worried that I won't be able to implement them all perfectly. And I'm like, God, me, me too. Me neither. You know, it's like the don't turn it into another, uh, attempt to sort of, uh, transcend your personality, the person that you really and actually are. I caught myself thinking that when I was reading it, but again, (laughs) that's to me, a symptom of exactly what you're talking about in this book and I do I do think of myself as a you know a productivity geek more like you know full-blown productivity addict who is way <laughs> who is just so far just only barely at the first step of admitting the scale of the problem um and so 
there was kind of every impulse in me to like, I've got to get to the end because surely he's got like a list of all the things I can like do to fix this. Um, I sort of have, but I try to yeah. be very sort of low key about it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so I'm like racing through and I'm just kind of like, it, sort of take a step back and like look at what you're doing and you were just a poster for why this book, why, why this book needed to be written and why you specifically needed to read it. Um, but it's something that I was, um, I was, someone told me recently, I'm reporting a story, which is kind of somewhat related to productivity. And, um, someone said to me that there is an impulse. So many of us have an impulse to, once we've identified a problem to immediately jump to a solution. And that actually for many people and for especially large scale problems, um, we actually don't know the extent of the problem yet. And I kind of felt that even just reading this, that this is kind of scratched beneath, scratched at the surface of something that I actually am not sure for me personally, kind of where it necessarily sits. And so it's not a case of here are five tips and Mm -hmm. here's how you can kind of fix it. Um, And something that you were kind of talking about with how um, the book has now led to, you know, so many more emails and so many more opportunities and, you know, people like us asking you to come on our podcast and all of that kind of stuff. Um, It does make me think about something that I'm really interested in, which is, again, it was um, something that you've kind of talked about in the book, but this, this difference between kind of having something, but not being able to feel it um, or sort of a disconnect sometimes between our perceptions. Um, I wrote something recently and coined this phrase, productivity dysmorphia, where to kind of talk about how sometimes one can have all of these external markers of success, but you just can't see them in yourself and just Mm. have this inability to actually perceive your own success. And I really, and it's really, it runs parallel with productivity culture because productivity culture teaches us to do more, 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 but doesn't actually, there's no kind of room for stopping and savoring the fruits of that productivity. Mm. Um, and, and I think all of these things are kind of connected and all kind of come part and parcel. Um, and it's just really interesting because one thing that I found very refreshing in your book was that you talk about capitalism and the system and the economic system, economic forces that are kind of running in the background here, but they are not entirely to blame in and of themselves. And that actually we are willing participants in mm. our own in kind of this commodification of our time. Um, and I did find that really, really interesting um, because to kind of segue somewhat, I do think money is another big element that I would really like to talk about um, in kind of relation to this. And, you know, when you're talking, you're talking about billable hours in relation to a corporate lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I'm not a corporate lawyer, I still, I technically have billable hours. If I'm not working, I'm not getting paid. Mm-hmm. Um and so it becomes really easy to fall into this trap that you, I know time isn't money, but it becomes very hard not, it becomes really hard to accept that um, yeah. because it does feel like, but this is a thing I don't get paid for. So how do I, how, you know, it becomes harder to square that. Um, and I, I think that's a really, I think that's kind of like a really interesting part of all of this as well as the role that money plays in relation to our time. Yeah, yeah, no, and you're right. I mean, the billable hour in legal work is a very sort of vivid portrayal of it. But obviously, um, anyone freelancing, anyone self-employed or all all sorts of people are in the position where there is a sense in which time is money. And I think, yeah, one of the risks of that that I write about in the book is just the idea that it it makes time that is not spent earning money feel not well used by definition um, when... In fact, that's that's not the case. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it, the, the quandary is partly to do with money, and then and it's also partly just to do with the sheer fact of taking this instrumental stance towards time. Right, the idea of valuing your time primarily for where it's leading, for what it's getting you, and that doesn't have to be money. That can be all sorts of future accomplishments and future benefits. Um, but if you go too far in that direction, um, as our culture and our economy strongly pushes us to to do, um, then yeah, you, there's no value left in the present moment. It's um, you're, you're placing the whole value of life in into the the future place. So that's another it's another sort of facet of this idea of always waiting for the for the perfect moment that's coming in the future is that the very idea of using your time 
well or responsibly or diligently or whatever, you know, has built into it this idea that it's for the future because um, just stopping and purely savoring where you are, something that I'm totally still learning to do at all, is entails a kind of like there's a little loss involved in that, right? There's a little sort of confrontation with like, cause that moment is there and then it's gone. You don't get to tell yourself that it's all cause it's all just being invested in a, in something for the future. It, it's sort of wasted uh, in a way. And there's a, I don't, I don't want to read my own words, but there's a tiny little quote from Simone de Beauvoir about this that I just think is, is so um, good. And if you wouldn't mind, please, please, please. If the satisfaction of an old man drinking a glass of wine counts for nothing, then production and wealth are only hollow myths. They have meaning only if they are capable of being retrieved in individual and in living joy. Um, I mean, she always put everything she said brilliantly and can't improve on it, so there's not a lot of point in trying to unpack that. But but I do think that, yeah, I mean, you, there's no... That's the positive way of talking about that but there's this negative way as well which is that like if you're going to do that you have to give up the idea that you're that you're um using a moment for this future salvation future eternal life future sort of god status that you're supposedly going to achieve one day you have to surrender that in order to get true value out of it in the in the moment and so it's it's not easy. It's definitely not. And <laughs> one thing I do, something I do wonder, which is kind of on the flip side of this is again, kind of specifically in relation to money is to what extent do you think that money makes it either easier or at least in some way kind of changes our ability to be more discerning about how we spend our time? Um, because something I've kind of been thinking about a lot recently is that there is a real imbalance between the the givers of much kind of productivity advice and the receivers. Um, you know, there's a lot of productivity advice out there that talks about, you know, just delegate this or set a boundary <laughs> or do that, blah, 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 with no yeah. transparency about the fact that this person either quite literally has someone to delegate to right. or is so senior that they don't yeah. have to worry about their position in the company, or at the very least, they don't have money worries that are keeping them up at night. And they're not turning to time management techniques because quite literally they need to fit these pieces together to make ends meet. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas sometimes the consumers of productivity advice are coming at it from quite a different position. Um, so I do kind of wonder basically, you know, to what extent is the biggest productivity hack just being rich? Um, so, <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a, it's a really good question. And I mean, honestly, you read some of that stuff and you think like, well, if it doesn't even speak to me and I don't have any illusion that I'm in a position of sort of underprivileged when it comes to any of these things, if, then like, then it must not be speaking to almost anybody on the planet. But um, I, I, yeah, I, I think that um, one of the, one of the things I wanted to try to deal with in this book and it's and it's one of those difficult things that might be sort of both true and kind of easy for me to say um which is always dicey territory but is like i think that this approach to, to to finitude and to time management the one that we're exploring here and that i'm trying to outline in the in the book it it the benefits of of the the benefits of seeing reality for what it is, which I think is what, what it's really about. I do think that that is basically universally applicable. And I do think that even if you are in a job that you hate and that is taking up vast swathes of your time and that you're only working in it to keep a roof over your head because you are, you know, unlucky compared to the way that some people are lucky. Um, even then it's really useful to be able to see where the, standards to which you're being held by yourself or society or your boss or whatever are impossible ones, right? There's still a kind of internal psychological liberation in, in seeing that um, it's not possible to do impossible things and to sort of align what you're doing with your highest values such that, you know, if you hate your job, but it act, 
but you genuinely come to a sort of conscious belief that it is the best option for you now in order to serve goals that you do care about, like caring, looking after you, housing your family or something, then it acquires meaning through having made that connection with the with the why, which is not to say it's okay that we live in a world where lots of people have to work in jobs they hate, but on an individual level, there is a kind of, there is a way of sort of infusing meaning into how you're spending your time if it is in fact in the service of things that you care about even if the day-to-day of it you 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 don't care about so i guess what i'm i'm not quite responding to your point that i'm trying to say how i think that this productivity advice doesn't fall into that <laughs> trap so much but i guess i would say that the, the i suppose the flip side thought that i'm trying to get out is that i don't think that the people with them all the money and the legions of assistants are necessarily making better use of their time because they have those resources. They, they may like, that's the, I think having those resources puts you in a great position if you can combine it with a sort of certain kind of um, insight into the nature of uh, life. But, but it doesn't follow at all that you're going to. In fact, I could well imagine that, and I think you could see traces of this in some of the research, that it actually just fuels the delusions of grandeur. That, mm-hmm. like, If we're all in the position of having delusions of grandeur over our limited time, then, then someone who actually is quite grand in their, in their resources and their situation is, is surely going to fall into those delusions uh, even more. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's plenty of evidence that, uh, you know, people in very high status jobs are incredibly busy and, uh, to the point that they don't like it and burn out, uh, or that even that they have a harder time, they enjoy their leisure time less because they have a wider range of options for how to use it. So FOMO is worse because, uh, they could always be skiing when they're reading a novel and therefore it's, less easy to enjoy the novel um but yeah i don't think i'm disagreeing with anything you said um yeah as i've said that it's as you said seeing the reality for what it is and then we can move forward and make conscious choices so again something spoke to me was um the anxiousness around commitment i sometimes experience because again there's that fantasy of limitless options um and so essentially through reading your book and seeing that time is finite or accepting or being confronted with that allows us to make trade-offs and different decisions based on that. And that in itself, I have so far found extremely freeing. Um, And I'm working more towards a world of time affluence because that's another thing that can help us feel happier in our day-to-day. But on that, I mean, so that's how your book changed my life. <laughs> I'm very, um, I'm, honestly, a, it's lovely to hear it. In a nutshell. Um, and so I was curious <laughs> to also ask how the books changed you and going through that process of almost teaching what yourself perhaps maybe needed to learn. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I think you'll, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I think that there may be people who think that the way that books like this get written is that you sort of first of all figure something out and then you set it down in a book when obviously what really happens is that the process of writing the book is the process of figuring out what you think about the topics. And then it's also a kind of process of changing yourself because you you can't... Um, uh, to write the book with some measure of authenticity, you may have to like become a somewhat different person than you, than you started out, uh, as plus, I mean, it's just a, it's just a large, um, project and requiring a lot of time and attention and focus. All these questions about how you use your time are like thrown into relief when, when you're trying to write a book because a sort of, it's not even a particularly long book, but like a 70,000 word book is weirdly harder to write than um, like, I don't know, the equivalent number of articles that would lead to that. There's something about it being in the, the, the size of a, of a book that is uh, 
that is especially challenging. So, you know, there were sacrifices I had to make. There were sacrifices that other people had to make, for sure. Um, there was patience demanded of my editors and my wife. And uh, I became a father in the middle of, uh, after selling the proposal for this book, but before really getting into the manuscript. So there was a whole new uh, layer of limitations on my time. So it was sort of like I was sort of living through this confrontation with uh, finitude while it was happening. And then in the last sort of third of the book I was writing during the pandemic. Uh, so that's a whole nother sort of layer of ways in which we've all sort of been thinking afresh about, well, mortality certainly, but also just like, you know, how we're using the hours of the day, things like that. Um. And maybe kind of as a last question, because we do normally end our podcast with kind of like a practical section, although increasingly we've not been able to do that because we're ta tackling topics that we can't <laughs> just give out quick advice. However, one thing that I think the productivity addict in me just can't help but not ask is, are there any old pieces of productivity advice that you used to be devoted to that you still use? Um, and also... Do you still have a do you have a morning routine? Do you still have one? Has it changed? What is it? I I love talking about these things too. So <laughs> don't, no no need for me anyway for the any apology there maybe. Um old pieces that I still use. I mean, I feel like as I was saying earlier, quite a lot of things I've sort of circled back around to in a hopefully new uh, uh spirit in a sense of like not demanding quite so much out of them. So the Pomodoro technique uh, is certainly one of those or things relating to it, working with a little timer uh, anyway, not always for necessarily for 25 minutes. Um, I think the idea that came from, for me, came from David Allen and his book, Getting Things Done. That's one of the sort of magnum opuses of this field, just not the whole complicated system necessarily, but that, that fundamental idea of not using your brain to store uh, reminders of the things you need to do, using your brain to sort of work things out and create stuff, but, but, but keeping comprehensive lists. And I have lists, you know, in one place, now they're in Notion, if you want to get really, uh, if you want to get, get really geeky about like, I've tried. I know no, I know this. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm already sort of annoyed with it, but actually often that's kind of, that's the sign of a deep. I've reverted back to, a... to Google Sheets. <laughs> I just use Google Notes. Yeah. I've, yeah. I'm just using a bog standard spreadsheet these days, but anyway. Well, fair enough. Yeah. But um, uh, no, I've got lots of, I've, I'm already treat Notion like a sort of um, beloved relative who also really annoys you. Um, but uh, anyway, just just keeping structured lists of everything that's on your plate, everything you might want to do or you said you would do, just having it all in one place that isn't your head, um, I think is an incredibly powerful uh, technique that I still use. And then just like carrying a little notebook or a stack of index cards around to scribble down stuff for that process that comes during the, during the day. Um, morning routine. So this is in constant flux. Uh, I do, I think, I think it would be fair to say I have a morning routine. Uh, the centerpiece of that, that never really changes, um, apart from coffee, <laughs> is, uh, is I do write morning pages pretty much every morning. I do write three sides of a narrow ruled A5 notebook. It takes me about 40 minutes. Um, it's usually kind of therapy-ish stuff. It's usually like Dear Diary. It's not creative writing. I know some people use it to sort of trial works of fiction or things. It's not, it's not that for me. Um, and that has a great, uh, 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 well, both it sort of like clears out the cobwebs and it uh, sometimes does sort of generate solutions to problems that you hadn't, where you hadn't perceived a solution before. Um, I've, my big challenge in life in general, which is like being uh, more flexible and less rigid about uh, how to sort of how to sort of plan the day and interact with other people, has obviously gets a got a severe testing from par from parenthood, and so I 
Now I sort of think of my morning routine. Firstly, it's always in flux and I'm not, I've given up thinking that it's going to get to a sort of fixed, perfect morning routine. And then secondly, I try to think in terms of a running order in, instead of a fixed schedule. Mm. So I want to do certain three things before I get started to work for the day. A little bit of reading of a certain kind of book that I might be reading, morning pages, and then usually some meditation, although I'm, I'd be lying if I said that was operational right at the moment. Um, so I've got this running order, but it might well be that after the first two, um, I'm going to spend, that's when my son wakes up and it's time to make breakfast and time to do the school run. And then I would do the third one afterwards. So that sort of placates the part of me that wants order in my life without um, denying the part of life that has no interest in obeying my my uh desire for order so that's my always my that's always my struggle and then the stuff that i find hardest is like how to plan out how to plan out the day in in more detail you know pomodoro is obviously a way to do that but i desperately want to sort of time block and plan my day in that way and i do um and i recommend it to other people and blah 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 but it's it's a so a work in progress <laughs> but i think that's that's definitely the um the biggest comfort i've taken from this book is that all of this stuff is a work in progress and that's okay um so i definitely felt so much better for for reading the book and for just also realizing there's a whole community of other kind of <laughs> productivity addicts in recovery out there um so yes thank you thank you very much for the book and for also for your time talking with us today it's been a pleasure i really enjoyed this conversation thank you thank you so much you've been listening to is this working hosted by Anna Cogerado and Tiffany Philippou. It was produced by Chris Bannister. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment to rate and review the show. It really helps us out. Until next time. <laughs>